You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast. This week, the show is sponsored by Hand to God, the most Tony-nominated new American play on Broadway. The New York Times calls Hand to God flat-out hilarious and a true tour de force. And the Huffington Post raves it's the best play of the season. For tickets, visit telecharge.com. And now, on with the podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. I am Ken Davenport, and boy, oh boy, do I have a good one for you today. Usually, I record my podcast with my guests sitting just a few feet away from me, but I'm recording this podcast via Skype because my guest is thousands of miles away from me across an ocean in jolly old England. And that guest is none other than the Academy Award winning, Golden Globe Award winning, Tony Award winning, and Grammy Award winning lyricist, Sir Tim Rice. Welcome, Tim. Thank you, Ken. Usually at this point in the podcast, I'd list some of the shows that my guest has been associated with. But in Tim's case, I thought it'd be fun to just list some of the lyrics of the shows that he's written. Like, oh, I don't know, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, What's the Buzz, Tell Me What's Happening, I Can Show You the World. I mean, these are some of the most iconic and identifiable lyrics in the canon of musical theater history. We're talking shows like Joseph, Evita, Chess, all the Disney stuff, Aladdin, Lion King, etc. Tim has got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, he's in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and yes, you heard me correctly, he is Sir Timothy Rice because he was knighted by Helen Mirren. Okay, he was actually knighted by Queen Elizabeth II, but you get the audience joke. So, Tim, 
as a young lad, did you dream about being a lyricist? How did this all happen? I don't think I ever thought about writing songs as a career until I was doing it. And it came about by accident. I was trying to sell a tape of myself singing um, in, a, in a desperate attempt to become a pop singer in the swinging 60s. And nobody liked the voice. But in order to sell my obviously not very good voice, I wrote one or two songs, tunes as well as words. And to my amazement, one record company liked one of the songs and they recorded it with one of their groups. It wasn't a hit, but it made me think maybe I should stick to songwriting rather than trying to be a singer. And then through doing that, through writing pop songs, I met Andrew Lloyd Webber, who was doing a similar sort of thing, but he was trying to write for the theatre. And he was 17, I was 20, I think, or 19 or 20. And we were, we were two struggling songwriters, each needing the other half, because I was better at the words and he was better at the music. And what was the first thing you wrote together? Well, it was a musical based on the life of Dr. Thomas Bernardo, who was a Victorian philanthropist, very well known in England, setting up the Bernardo's homes. He may well be known in, in um, America as well, I'm not sure. But he was a, um, you know, do-gooder in Victorian times and um, set up this huge empire. I mean, it was an empire. It's an empire now, but... Um, he founded Dr. Bernardo's Homes for Orphans Children, which was a good thing to do. And we wrote this musical based on his life. And it was really very influenced by Oliver, the great Lionel Bart musical. And it was set in London in the 19th century. And it had the aristocrats and the um, street urchins and the prostitutes with hearts of gold and everything. It was, it was a bit too like Oliver. But it was the first thing we had a go at. And it taught us we could write together, even though it also taught us we, we shouldn't copy quite so blatantly. And what was the, do you remember the first lyric that you wrote? Yeah. What was it? <laughs> Great. I was gonna... well, the first lyric I wrote for my, one of my pop songs, I can remember that, but that's not perhaps not very interesting. But the first lyric I wrote with Andrew was a song in The Likes of Us, sung by an auctioneer. And the auctioneer's um, lot number one was a parrot. And the first two lines I wrote to any tune of Andrew's was by this auctioneer, who's a very minor character in the show, and he sings, Here I have a lovely parrot, sound in wind and limb. I can guarantee that there is nothing wrong with him. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> the funny lyrics I found easier. I'm not saying necessarily that was a breakthrough in, in uh, musical theatre, but um, that particular song called Going, Going, Gone was actually quite funny. And, and um, but... Uh, some of the ballads, some of the love songs I wasn't so hot on at that time. And tell me about the first big success you had or the moment when you and Andrew were like, oh, oh we're, we're on to something here. This is going to be... Well, it was, it was strange because we, we had an agent and we were working on this musical with Bernardo um, and we really thought it was good enough to make it onto the stage and certainly one or two things that are worse have made it onto the stage but it really wasn't all that good and I think if it had got on um, it would have been a bit of a disaster and perhaps might have set us back. Um, as it was it didn't get on and um, we'd made a demo disc of it and the reason, um, I mean the, the, the great benefit um, that Dr. Bernardo gave us this musical was that a, that a few friends heard this demo disc and the reason we got going was 
one of our friends is a schoolmaster, and he said, while you're waiting for your Dr. Bernardo musical to go to Broadway and the West End and all that, which obviously it will any minute, while you're waiting, would you like to write something for my kids' end-of-term school concert? And he asked us to write something for his children, and it was to be performed once in front of parents, and the only carrot, the only lure we had, the only incentive really, apart from the fun of doing something, was that it might appeal to educational music publishers. And it could become something that schools would do. And the piece we wrote was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And we did it at the school concert. And it was a huge success. And it was done again because it was so popular with the kids. And we realised that perhaps we'd done something slightly original as opposed to the attempts to copy Lionel Bart. And it took some time to get professionals interested in it but we had a very good review by sheer luck in a major London newspaper because what we didn't know was one of the little boys in the choir his father was the music critic of the Sunday Times and he reviewed without being asked to we didn't even, didn't even know he was there he reviewed one of the school concerts we did and said this is absolutely wonderful and watch out for these two guys and as a result of that we got ourselves a proper manager who backed us financially and then we sat down with three years, in effect, to make it because we had three years guaranteed pay from, from our agent, stroke manager, David Land. And the first thing we did was Jesus Christ Superstar. It's amazing. I hear so many people struggling so much to get critics to see their shows and <laughs> you didn't even know he was there and he helped launch your career. I love it. Well, we didn't. We, we didn't even try and get critics because it was a school concert. What we tried to do was to get educational music publishers along to see Joseph, and they didn't turn up. But as soon as the review in the Sunday Times, they were ringing up saying, oh, can we, can we hear this piece? We know we'd like to publish it. So we were very lucky. But if we just, um, even if we'd asked the critics of the Sunday Times um, and, uh, you know, other music critics. I doubt whether they would have come along to a school concert. And that first musical you wrote, did anything ever happen to it, or did you both put it on well, the shelf? It, it, some of the tunes uh, found their way into other shows. The tunes, I think, looking back on it, were, were stronger than the music. But even the tunes, Andrew would admit this, were a bit derivative in style. Not, not, not you know, melodically, but, but, but in style, they were very much a sort of mishmash of Richard Rogers and Lionel Barr, which is a pretty good mishmash to have. Um... And we did it again, um, we did it again, we did it for the first time um, at a small festival Andrew gave at his home uh, in 2005, which was uh, 40 years after it was written. And uh, the British actor Stephen Fry acted as a narrator and I was in it, I was the auctioneer singing about parrots. <laughs> and um, we had a good West End cast and, and, we, and we did it as a bit, bit tongue-in-cheek and... Um, the audience loved it, and, and, and it's now available. You can, you can get it on an album. It came out as a double CD, and it's got a funny sort of running through commentary stroke narration in which half the narration is about how the show was never quite finished, and the other half was about the actual plot of the show. So it's an entertaining album. I would warmly recommend it. It's called The Likes of Us, and you can probably dig it up on Amazon. I smell and it, it has been done in a few schools since. One or two schools have done it, and... I've been to see one, you know, the odd production in a school. Actually, it, it works. It's quite fun. I smell a revival coming soon. <laughs> I don't think it's good enough to go to, to the West End. I thought that in 1966, but I don't think it now. 
Tell me a little bit about your process for writing lyrics. I mean, we hear all these things about music, some people, music first, lyrics first. What's your process when, oh, I have to write a song for, oh, I don't know, Mary Magdalene at this moment in her life. What's the first step for you? Well, the first step is to get the story right. The story is the key to any musical. I believe that very strongly. It's even more important than the score. And... Really, we chose with, with both Joseph and Superstar, we chose very good stories, which we didn't basically write. We had to reconstruct them, but, but they were worth wonderful stories. And therefore, you have to get the detail of the scene as well. You've got to make sure that you know what the character has to say before you start writing a word, and, and even before you start writing a note of the music. So the, the, the modus operandi for most of the shows I've worked on has been get the story right, get the scene right, know who's in the scene and what they have to say. Then the composer does a tune knowing what the tune has to convey and then I write the lyrics to the tune. That's more or less the way that's always gone, except with Elton, who um, famously likes the lyrics first. So, But again, with The Lion King, which is the first time I worked on a major thing with Elton, the key thing was to get the story correct. And that took a long time because there was a new story and I was working on the story with um, the scriptwriters. And I would then submit lyrics to Elton and then a tune would come back. But it was always the story has to be the key. So most of the time you're actually last. Lyrics are last. Yeah. Oh. So, so for a while, you're the only, I was the only person in the world who'd heard Don't Cry For Me Argentina, briefly. Then I took it to Andrew. He was the second person to hear it. But of course with Elton, if I, if I send Elton the, the lyric, he's the first person to hear the finished song. And then he sends me a CD or an MP3 or whatever in those days, it was probably a cassette. <laughs> so let's back up a little bit, because there's just an interesting moment there. You said you were the first person, the only person in the world to ever hear Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, because you're last. So the song comes, yeah. the story comes, the tune comes, you write the lyrics, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, sit down, and you sing sing it, I assume? You sing. Well, I sing it to myself. Um, obviously, that's quite a difficult song to sing, and also I'm, I'm, I'm the wrong sex for it. Um, although I should... Quite a few blokes have had a go at it. Um, yes, I mean the point is it's 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 just an interesting thought that whenever I've written the lyrics to a song to a tune, briefly I'm the only person in the world who's heard the finished song. Now a lot of the finished songs aren't very good, and often I'm the only person who hears the finished song. But with something like "Don't Cry Me Argentina" or "I Don't Know How to Love Him" or you know the whole new world, I was very briefly, the only person who heard the finished song. So it's quite exciting, I suppose. And did you, do you know when you've hit it out of the park like that? When, when... Not really. I think you know when something is, is works artistically, but whether or not it will work commercially is in the lap of the gods. We, we never for one minute thought that Don't Cry Me Argentina would be a hit song outside the concept of the show. It was written as a scene in the show. It was not written as a single and I think if we had tried to write a hit single for that scene, it wouldn't have been half as good. But we wrote a song which was really a political statement and furthermore, an insincere political statement. It was almost meant to be a string of cliches put together with a beautiful tune. It's rather like politicians. You know, they try and make what they say sound fantastic. But actually, if you analyze what they're saying, it's bollocks. <laughs> Usually. Fascinating. Now, I often say that a success of a writer is not only the writing itself, but also choosing what projects to write. And yep. early on in your career, what 
how did you pick the shows with Andrew? With what, what, what was your process for like this show versus this one or these ideas? Well, the idea is very, very important, obviously. And when I met Andrew, he was already beginning work on, on the Bernardo story. So that was one I, I, I bought into quite happily. Although in retrospect, I don't think it was a particularly good idea because it was not, it, it didn't immediately have a, have, a, have a brand image, as we say these days. And I think a show has much, much more chance of success if people know something about it before, whether it's based on a film, whether it's based on a hit record, whether it's about a famous person. Um, so to that extent, the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus were pretty good choices. They were great stories. Um, why we chose them, I don't know. Uh, Joseph, really, we were, we were commissioned by a schoolmaster and we decided to go for something that would have appeal that, that, that wouldn't date, that maybe other schools would do eventually. And that led us to the history or Bible, the Bible. And that was my favorite Bible story as a kid. And Superstar, I was always fascinated by the character of Judas Iscariot. And originally the, the piece was really meant to be more about Judas than Jesus. But in fact, it's about Jesus, but seen through the eyes of Judas. Mm-hmm. Ava Peron, I just heard the story, her life story, or a little bit of it on a radio program. Um, I, I didn't really know very much about her, but I thought, wow, this is a very interesting character. I'd heard about her. I knew she was Argentine. I knew she was dead. Um, but I didn't know much more. And it was the fact that I was so intrigued by this radio program about somebody I didn't know much about. I thought, well, maybe this is a good idea for a show. And it turned out to be. The Disney ideas on the whole, that all of them, were there. I mean, that was part of Disney. So it was their, it was their choices. But I'm happy to be a hard hand occasionally. Yeah, so tell me about that that difference. So, you know, obviously you've worked for a lot of independent producers and uh, at the beginning of your career and even – but then you've started obviously working for big, giant corporate behemoths like Disney. What's the difference? What... Well, there's an enormous difference in um, the fact that if it's your baby from the start, like if you came up with the idea – Um, and if you can keep control of it before you bring in too many producers and directors and all that, then you have much more control, as we did with Superstar and Joseph and Evita in particular, because it was our baby, each of them we were working on, and nobody was that interested in telling us how to do it because nobody thought they'd be hits. And one of the best ways to avoid interference is to be unsuccessful, or at least to be waiting for success. Once you become successful, and this is weird, it's a paradox that I've often been baffled by, that the longer I go on in my career, and I've done all right, you know, I've had quite a few successes, the more people tell me how to do my job. (laughs) And when you're working with a big company like Disney and it's their bat and ball, frankly, you have to go along with it. But in the end, you can usually prevail. I mean, I remember Can You Feel the Love Tonight? I had so many people trying to rewrite that one. And... In the film of Evita, there were people trying to change things all the time. And you, you just say, well, hang on, it's worked so far. Why do you need to alter it? Um, but you've got to have a bit of confidence and occasionally fight changes. But sometimes people are right. You have to get the other possibility, the ghastly possibility, that you might not be the only person who's right. But it's, but it's, it's much more satisfying, I think, in a way, to, to run your own shooting match. But, of course, you haven't got that protective shield or... or or that sort of um, financial uh, cushion if, if um, things go wrong, if you're bearing the brunt of it yourself. The more successful you get, the more people tell you how to do your job. I love that. Absolutely. That's so true. Well, you see, the thing is, 
people don't think you'll be successful. I mean, um, I think even after Superstar, people thought we were one-hit wonders, or two-hit wonders, if you can't chose it, which was coming up on the rails at that point. Um, so nobody really thought, I mean, when, when, when we said we were doing a thing on Ava Perron, Nobody said, right, guys, here's a theatre, let's get going. They just let us get on with it. And we did the album in England uh, of the entire piece with the Sucking Great Orchestra and singers and everything, and we did what we wanted. We didn't have to worry about a director, a producer, or anything. When the album was a big hit in England and Argentina was a big hit song, then we got other people on board. But it was difficult for them to make too many changes because the record had been so successful mm -hmm. without them. Um, I mean, there were some changes made for the stage show of Evita because um, it, 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 well, I mean, and, and I think correctly, but um, just one or two songs were changed. But Superstar was unchanged from the original album. But, you know, everything else I've done, um, to a great extent, has been mucked around with by others and sometimes profitably. One of the things I love uh, about looking at all of the shows that you've done is you've worked with such a variety of composers from Andrew Lloyd Webber to Alan Menken to Benny and Bjorn to Elton John. Yeah, well, I'd be very lucky. Which one's your favorite? Tell us, <laughs> Tell us now. <laughs> well, I have a soft spot for the guy who wrote my very first song, the tune for that, me. <laughs> oh, they're all great. They're all different. I mean, you've got to, you can only work with people um, that you admire. You know, it doesn't mean to say that you automatically like everything they do, and they won't like everything you do, but you've got to work with somebody who you think is, is pretty good at their job, or else it ain't going to happen. But I shall leave a letter to be opened 50 years after my death. So you might just be around, and I would say, actually, the one I liked working with best of all, the one with the greatest talent was... Ta -da! <laughs> Are there... Uh young composers and lyricists that you admire today is there are there people that you look at and boy like boy that's 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 something well i've always had a lot of heroes but um as with most people my heroes tend to be older than myself not that many people who are older than myself around these days but um the people i admired obviously when i started out in the you know serious one well, in, in the musical theater field the obvious ones like alan j lerner and um lerner and low rogers and hammerstein Leonard Bernstein, all, 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 all this lot, um, and Sammy Kahn, and in the pop world, people like Jerry Lever, Mike Stoller, Chuck Berry, you know, great lyricists, Bob Dylan, of course. I mean, but your question was probably more interesting. Who do I like coming up now? I'm not sure. I mean, it sounds rather sort of ungracious of me, but um, you do get some, you know, very interesting shows, but there haven't been all that many hit songs from some of the shows lately, even if the show's great. Um, there's some shows I really want to see that, that, that have just opened on Broadway, which I'm going to see in the next couple of months or so. And there have been wonderful shows I've enjoyed enormously, like Book of Mormon or the producers, very funny shows. But they're not really, they're sort of brilliant evenings out, great, great comedies, but, and they are, of course, good musicals, but they're not musicals in the sense of the stuff that Andrew and I wrote, I think. And, you know, I mean, they may be better for all, for, for all, all I can say, but it's, it's difficult to, um, I mean, I'm from a tradition where the, the score often has to, has to play an integral part. Do you have a favorite lyric of, of your own? Well, it's difficult. Um, I've certainly got quite a few I wish I hadn't written. Um, but What's your least I, favorite then? Let's start with that. 
<laughs> you want to tell everyone? Oh. Well, there's some pretty terrible lyrics in um, well in Superstar. When uh, there's this one quite funny one in Superstar where he sings um, one of the lepers sings, "See my tongue, I can hardly talk," which logically, if you think about it, should be hardly talk. And that line usually went to somebody who only had that one line in the show. So he or she would really belt that line beautifully, like Placido Domingo at his peak. And I think that's not really logical, is it? See my tongue, I can hardly talk. So, well, actually, you're talking rather well. What's your problem? <laughs> so that's, that, that's a pretty bad line. Um, and I think we changed it to see his tongue. He can hardly talk. So it was a bloke talking about his mate. Um, and there are one or two bad rhymes, which I wouldn't do now in Joseph and Superstar, you know, rhyming time with mine, or even in Heaven on Their Minds, one of my favourite songs, it ends up, all your followers are blind, too much heaven on their minds. That, that, that's, that's not very good. But in rock music, which Superstar is rock, people forget that. If you listen to the original album, it's definitely a rock album. Um, if you, accurate rhyming isn't always essential, but I think in musical theatre it is, so... Some of those early rhymes I'm, I'm a bit nervous about. But um, I was asked this question, your favourite lyric, the other day on the radio in England, and I, I came up with one of the ones I liked recently, is um, Scar in, in The Lion King, who um, his song isn't remembered as well as some of the others, but he has a great couplet, I always like, a shining new era is tiptoeing nearer. I just rather like that. Uh, I agree, that's a good one. If I was very quiet there, listeners, it was because I was suppressing my laughter at the time. Oh, that is a I was great, very serious. <laughs> that is a fantastic comment on, on your least favorite lyric, quote unquote. Uh, so I was telling someone that I was doing this podcast with you and they said, oh, oh you've, uh, you've got to tell him that uh, I ask him about chess. Ask him about chess I, because I, I think I've got an idea on how it can work, how it can work. I mean, chess is one of those great musicals that's so admired by so many, including me, but for some reason has never quite achieved the commercial yeah. success. Is there – why do you think that is? Can it well, work? It's, it's a complicated story, and, and the, the seed wisdom is that the story is no good and the songs are great. I don't think – I mean, I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think the story actually is complex. But one of the problems is a lot of um, the wonderful music that, 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 that Benny Anderson came up with – orchestrally and chorally, it's very hard to hear the words because you've got choir singing. You know, you've got often a lot of key plot things sung by big choirs. There's a wonderful sequence where all the great chess champions of all time have their names and dates called out. And it sounds beautiful, but nobody knows really what's happening. And the opening song, the opening big song, the song called Murano, and another key song called The Story of Chess, it's terribly hard to make out what they're saying. And I've always said the way to make chess work on stage is to have subtitles or surtitles like they do in opera. And I think that would make a lot of difference. And I, and I think that would work for a lot of shows. I often go to a theatre and see a musical and I think, oh, great, but I can't quite make out all the words. And it's easy to assume because you know the words as you wrote them, or as, if it's one of my own shows. It's very easy to assume everybody clearly can hear every lyric, but they can't. Um, it's very hard to catch all the lyrics first time around unless it's a very clearly sung solo number. So, I mean, having said that, I agree that the story of chess needs to be, the, 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 the plot needs to be made crystal clear, but I think a lot of that would be cleared up by having the lyrics crystal clear. 
Do you uh, obviously? I mean, your friend. He's welcome to have a go. <laughs> Listen, I know he'd love to do it. A lot of people, I'd love to do it. So many people. I mean, I remember going to Lincoln Center to watch the original uh, on video there and just saying, God, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. Yeah. Well, it, was, it, it, it has been successful in some places. It was quite successful in London the first time out. It ran for three years. And it would have run for longer if we hadn't, unfortunately, had to spend a lot more money on it than we intended because we had to change directors halfway through. So we were kind of paying for two shows for the price of one. Speaking no, of the, hang on, one show for the price of two, <laughs> which is not the way to go. Speaking of the West End and Broadway, what do you see as the big differences between the two? Well, I think the the, um, the, the big difference really for me is the audience. Um, in England, we're, we're, we're much more laid back and we don't leap up and down and cheer as much as they do on Broadway. Um, sometimes I think Broadway audiences are almost too enthusiastic, you know, the chap selling the programs gets a standing ovation sometimes. But in England, I think we're often too quiet and audiences are a little wary of revealing what they think. So I think somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic, there's the ideal audience who are neither too extravagant nor too quiet. So that, that I think is the main difference. Um, I would have said 15, 20 years ago that London... Um, dancers weren't quite up to the standard of Broadway dancers um, and the concept of somebody that who can in musicals sing, dance and act that was rarer in England when Andrew and I started out but it's, but it's not true now, there are some wonderful performers in England who can do I think who can match the wonderful performers on Broadway And what would you say to a young 20-year-olds who was interested in writing pop songs or or musical theater songs now, uh, what kind of advice do you have for the young writers of today? Well, I I don't know too much about the current pop scene. I mean, I try and vaguely keep tabs on it, but um, it seems to me that pop songs these days, a lot of them are, are constructed rather than written. So you get nine people taking credit for a song, which seems to me ludicrous, really. Um... And I, I wouldn't know how to advise people, but I think it's, it's something you can either do or you can't as far as the theatre is concerned, and a good tune is, is, is hard to beat. I mean, you asked me a bit earlier about promising young composers. Well, of course, the one I should have mentioned is, 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 is the man I've been working with on my most recent show, Stuart Brayson, who I think has a great gift for music and a um, great gift for melody. And... I think I'm hopeful that From Here to Eternity will make its mark in America and indeed again in Britain. It, it didn't quite make it first time in London. But I think we made one or two mistakes, which were certainly not in the music. And the music is very strong and powerful. But as to how to give advice to people, I don't know. I mean, you've got to get a... Um, if you're writing, you, the key thing I would say is get a great story, get an original plot line and, and get a story that maybe mean something to people, um, not necessarily just taking um, a recent hit movie or something, but taking a story that people can relate to um, almost before they've seen the show. That, that's, that's, that's a help. I was, my next question was to ask you about From Here to Eternity and what you are working on next. So tell, tell us a little bit more about the next steps for that piece. Well, I'm also, at the moment, right now, working on some... Uh, songs with Alan Menken for the new live-action version of Beauty and the Beast, which is a return to working with my chums at Disney, which is fine. I'm, I'm enjoying that very much. But From Here to Eternity was a musical I wrote with 
um, Stuart Brayson, book by Bill Oakes, and we put it on in London, and it ran for six months, which was frankly not as good as we'd hoped. And there were some great things in it, um, not least Stuart's music, and a great story, James Jones's wonderful book, um, from Here to Eternity, which became a film with Frank Sinatra and Burt Lancaster, but a long time ago, 1953, the movie. And we, it, everybody said to us at the time, particularly Americans who came to see the show, said, well, why haven't you done this in America? And in a way, that would be the logical place to have opened it, because it's an American story about GIs in Hawaii just before Pearl Harbor was attacked. But we were all Brits, and we felt, well, if we go over to America and try and do it there, apart from the logistical problems it's going to be so easy unless we are absolutely perfect um for people to say well why are these brits doing this american story um and i think what we should have done i mean in i mean in effect we've the london production has been the most expensive workshop of all time um for which which i which i hope will rectify um uh get get what was wrong with it right for New York and indeed for America and we've had offers already firm offers to tour it to put it on um, both here in England and in America so I think I think it's 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 good enough to work providing and it, and it will be great it'll be a great show if we can just get the other bits right and I wish really strongly that we'd opened it out of town in England that we we'd worked out um, or found out what was wrong with it but not in the West End and it's very hard to change things once you open a show on, on Broadway or in the West End and you're in the full glare and you've got, you know, you've got to put it on every night, you've got huge costs, you've got a cast that you quite rightly shouldn't muck around with too much, you shouldn't make too many changes for their sake. Once you've opened in, in, in the spotlight, it's very hard to change and I very much wish we'd um, done something with From Here to Eternity out of town. And I think if we'd opened it in America straight away and not quite got it right, that would have finished the show. I don't think it could have come back to England. But I do, I'm very genuinely very confident about it. And we've got a, um, we're doing a reading workshop in New York um, very soon, in June. And I hope from that we'll get some interest, which we've already had, you know, some interest from producers, performers, the team we need. You know, so I'm, I'm taking it step by step. Okay, and the last question for you today, which is very fitting, because I've been calling this with other people the genie question. And of course, you wrote lyrics to this show. So I want you to imagine... Uh, that the genie from Aladdin comes down and says, Tim, you've written some amazing things and your contributions to the world of musical theater and motion pictures have been amazing. Therefore, I'm going to grant you one wish, one wish, and you can change whatever you want about Broadway, the West End, theater, writing in general. With the snap of a finger... I will change whatever you want, whatever keeps you up at night or drives you crazy. What would that one thing you'd want your genie to change? <laughs> well, I think it may sound trivial, but I think I would like to have programs in London free, like they are on Broadway. The programs in British theatre, particularly musicals, are an absolute rip-off. You can, usually can't get a program unless you fork out 10 or 15 quid for a glossy souvenir program. Not many people really want a glossy souvenir program unless it's been a fantastic evening. And I would, next time I do a show in the, in the West End, if there is a next time, I will make sure that programs, a free playbill type program is included because it's such a great relief in New York. You haven't got to 
you, you go into the theatre, you're given, I'm all right, the theatre seats are not cheap, but you walk into the theatre and you get given a programme and you haven't got to fork out, try and find your dollar bills, you haven't got to find loose change. You, and, and, and that is that really makes a big difference to the evening. And while I'm at it, actually, the other thing which I loathe on Broadway and hasn't yet affected London are those hideous cups that you now drink from. I mean, I would rather ban drinking. I don't think people should drink during the show. Um, but if they are going to, they should be allowed to take in a civilised-looking champagne glass. All right, made of plastic, but you've got these things which... It's like Fort Knox trying to get into them. They are... I'm sure they're incredibly unhygienic, and they're hideous things to drink out of, and sipping wine through one of those things is a revolting experience. So London should avoid that and um, and from New York and should be inspired by New York's free programs. That's what my genie would do. Free programs and no more sippy cups, says Sir Timothy Bryant. He's got the franchise on that. (laughs) Thank you so, so much for being with us today. Um, You know, Tim has actually written a autobiography, which I'm going to include a link to so you can learn much more about uh, his incredibly long and incredibly valuable career for all of us. Thank you again so much. And for all you listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Ken. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Producers Perspective podcast hosted by me, Ken Davenport, with special guest Tim Rice. This episode was sponsored by the Tony-nominated play Hand to God. New York Magazine says Hand to God is irresistible, intelligent, and heartbreaking. It's Broadway's unlikeliest new must-see play. Get tickets to Hand to God at telecharge.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.